Good morning. We're in the um, closing up a series where we've been looking at John's first letter, and we've observed that the apostles, they lived in a more black and white world than we do today. Spiritually, the Old Testament was the only Bible that they had. That was it. And so the only place you could hear good news was where there was the influence of an apostle or somebody who had spent time with an apostle. And at the end of the first century, what we've talked about is that John is the last living apostle. He has outlived the rest of the apostles by almost four decades. He is the final eyewitness. And as he closes his letter, uh, I'll read 1 John 5, 13 through 21. John writes, I write these things to you who believe, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. O oh, children, keep yourself from idols. Teacher did an experiment, stood up in front, took a glass container, took some big rocks and put them in, held it up. How many of you think in this classroom, how many of you think this, this container is full? Almost every hand went up. It was full with large rocks. And then the professor took some gravel and poured the gravel in the glass container. And the gravel took up the space that the large rocks had not filled. And they held it up. How many think the container is full now? And just about everybody raised their hand, and, and then he took the container, and he took some sand. And he put the sand in the container. And the sand took up the space not taken by the gravel and not taken by the big rocks. And then he held it up. How many think that the containers were, by now they're getting, they're getting wise to them, and so they, you know, some of them did one of these, and I guess I, it's probably full. And then he took water, and he poured the water in, and the water took up the space that didn't get taken by the sand, that didn't get taken by the gravel, that didn't get taken by the big rocks. And he said, what's the point of this? If you didn't put the big rocks in first, they never would have fit in. Containers can get full of watery stuff, sand stuff, and gravel stuff. And as John ends his letter, he puts three big rocks in the container. 
Three big rocks that relative to faith that we need to make space for relative to Christian faith. And those big rocks are eternal life and answered prayer and forgiveness of sins. Whatever else Christianity is relative to how this happens, how that happens, what we believe about this, what we believe about that. Those might be gravel, it might be sand, it might be water, but we've got to make room for the big things. Eternal life, answered prayer, forgiveness of sins. And that's what John touches on as he brings his letter to a close. But eternal life says this, I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, for us who have been living with this, this is, okay, yeah, eternal life. We know about this, and whatever we think about it, it's something that we've talked about. You've heard about it ever since you were little. We talk about it at Christmas time. The fact is, for those to whom this letter is written, immorality, immortality, excuse me. Here's a, here's a slip, huh? <laughs> Immortality dwelt in shadow in the Old Testament of the Bible. You really can't create a doctrine of immortal existence from the Old Testament. It just isn't there. Not there. That's why immortality dwelt in the shadow in the Old Testament. It is Jesus who brings the concept of eternal life out of the shadows and into the light. Look what it says in Second Timothy 1. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Grace and eternal life are inseparably linked in this passage. And these are challenging concepts to wrap our minds around. You know, we think of eternal existence. That's something that is pleasurable to think about, hard to grasp, that we can eternally exist somewhere. That's a hard thing to grasp. Grace, grace is a hard thing to grasp. And it says some things here that are strange for us. Grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, I want you to think about that. Grace, unmerited favor, an undeserved gift. Before there was a world, before anything was created, God had already determined that eternal life would be a gift, a gift given through faith in Christ. Okay, okay. you say, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, move on. That's before sin existed. Before Adam and Eve made a choice. Grace had already been determined to be the way, the means whereby God would bestow eternal life. So in the garden then, when, when Adam and Eve said, it's not like God said, oh, what am I going to do now? I, I, I had plan A and now I have to do plan B. No, eternal life through faith in Christ was plan A. There was never another plan. So whatever happens in the garden, what we know is that it didn't surprise him. It wasn't that we had to make mid-course corrections. Okay, Jesus, now you're going to have to go die. That was, it's already, grace was already conceived of as the means whereby God would bestow eternal life. And it means some other things as well. Before death existed, before the beginning of time, before death existed, death's terminator 
had already been dispatched. Right? He destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When was it discovered, when was it conceived of in God's mind that God would destroy death? Before death ever existed. Before the beginning of time. Before sin existed, Jesus was the source of eternal life. Interesting notions. You can understand why these are things that are hard for us to wrap our minds around. But if Jesus brings immortality into light, that means it was in the dark prior to that. That's just what I want us to see. Eternal life is not something that these people would have talked about in church. Growing up, they would not have had an idea of eternal existence. Uh, the New Testament apostles and prophets were introducing new ideas that they would not have talked about when they were little kids. Um, some religions still have difficulty with the idea of eternal life. church I was grow, grew up in, um, I grew up Roman Catholic, and there were some really good things about that, some not-so-good things about that. One of them was you really could never be sure about eternal existence. As a Catholic, if you died with a certain sin on your soul, then you were okay. You know, the, the idea that you would bust rocks in purgatory, and I, you know, some of you understand that, you know, that you do some sins and then you, you don't go right to heaven, you have to go to purgatory. That's kind of what I believed growing up. And then you would not bust rocks, you know what I mean, but you would do something. You would do some sweaty, something uncomfortable, and then after you did that, and if you, you kind of, got rid of whatever it was keeping, then you'd be able to go to heaven. Um, so nobody really knew. It was considered arrogant to know that you had eternal life. Considered presumptuous. Um, some religions, it's difficult to know. Some, it's impossible to know. Some, like Islam, they, they reject the notion of eternal existence. Um, no matter what happened, it wasn't until Christ came that it was even possible to place your hope in eternal life. And again, at the same time, you could, very early in the history of the church, the idea of morality eclipsed the idea of eternity. In fact, in the second century, there was a writing second Clement. Now, listen to this. Now, this was already just a, a generation or two in, and here's what this Christian writer said. If we shall have done the will of the Father and kept the flesh pure and guarded the commandments of the Lord, we shall receive eternal life. Okay, listen to this. If we have done the will of the Father and kept the flesh pure and guarded the commandments of the Lord, we shall receive eternal life. You know, the problem with that is it's not true. Eternal life is a gift of grace. Grace is unmerited favor, an undeserved gift. It's not something that you can tally up. This is what I've done, so now you're obligated to give me eternal existence. Eternal existence is a gift given for free. Um, eternal life was something that John puts in a place of preeminence. The problem when you introduce the fear of judgment into the picture is that the fear of judgment becomes a fly in the ointment of love. What's happening in the people to whom John writes is that the idea of the assurance of eternal existence is not fixed. Now, you'd say, well, that's not really a problem. Yeah, it is, because what John understands is that there is no fear in love, but perfect love 
drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. This is what John is perceiving. There were individuals within the church, most of whom there was not a clear idea of the assurance of eternal life. Now, you'd say, well, what's the big problem with that? The problem was the fear of judgment will not and cannot catalyze love. It can't. You can't love for the purpose of earning your own way into heaven. Love is on the far side of the assurance of eternal life. To the degree that we know that we are going to be there, we can set aside our agenda and forward the agenda of somebody else. That's the way it works. And what John is seeking to do here, he sees people who are being unloving. And what he has to do is do something tricky. And he says, okay, here's the deal. You're not loving, and that's not a good sign. It's not a good side of authenticity. And then he says, because authenticity comes on the far side of being assured of eternal life. You know what happens in most churches? I find many churches, most, I'll say most. I'll say most. You're taught that put your faith in Christ, right? Put your faith in Christ, and that's defined in a number of different ways. And then the focus goes on, okay, now I'm going to tell you how to behave. Okay, you got this Jesus thing, you got Jesus in your life. Okay, now let's really focus on how you can act like it. There's a problem with that. The problem with it is that if you don't know what to believe, you're not going to be able to behave. If you don't know about eternal existence, You're not going to be able to love. That's what John is doing. He is laying a foundation for the reality of eternal life because to the degree you are convinced of that, you will find the capacity to love, which is the mark of a Christian. All of us have issues with that. All of us have issues because grace is challenging for us to wrap our arms around. Grace is tough. You know what the tough thing about grace is? The tough thing about grace is not just that it's an undeserved gift. Not that it's unmerited favor. You know what the tough thing about grace is? God extends it to them. That's what's tough about grace. God extends it to them. Who's your them? Randy just bumped Brett. Brett's with them. I just had to point that out. Brett's with them. And you know the other side that's difficult about grace? God dispatches us to bring it to them. That's what's tough about grace. It's free. That's good. But it's free to them, too. Okay, let's get away from that. Um, Eternal life, answered prayer. It says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Verses like this surface questions. The, The issue is, we believe this and we don't. You know, because the fact is, if this is prayer... You know, sometimes it doesn't work. And that's just our, that's just our experience, isn't it? 
prayer works sometimes. Sometimes it's, you know, oh, what the heck is wrong with this thing? And you can't always know when it works and when it doesn't. And we see verses like this. If you know that you have, that he heard you, you know that you have the request that you've asked of him. I imagine for many of us there have been times where we prayed something and we knew when it came true. Many times we prayed hoping that something would happen, trying to conceive of the assurance, and it didn't happen. And that's what makes prayer kind of tricky. The anything in this verse that says, if we ask anything according to his will, ah, that's the deal, according to his will. What does that mean? We are encouraged to pray about anything as servants of Christ. Um, What we're promised in every instance of prayer, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Let your request be made known to God, no matter what it is, even if it's not God's will. Ask him. Say, oh, come on, Mike. No, what it says, let your request be made known. And it doesn't say you're going to receive the request, but it does say you receive something. Here's what it says. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So here's the deal. Ask him about everything. Because what it says, as you do so, you don't always get what you ask, but what you do get is the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, guards your heart and mind, and allows your mind to be able to stay focused on Christ. And so that's you know, that's something for whatever you pray for. But there are some things, the requests that we can be confident God will comply with are those that lay hold of his intentions and his plans, and what are those? I think we'd agree that it's not always what I ask him about. You know, that's not always his intention and purpose, because I don't get it all the time. Look what it says in the days of his flesh, Hebrews 5. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Huh. Jesus was very authentic in his communications with his father. Very authentic. He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus was heard because of his reverence. And he prayed to him who would save him from death. And what it goes on to say, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It says, if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked of him. Did Jesus know that he was heard? Yeah. Did he get then what he was told then? If you know that God hears, you get the request that we've asked. Jesus was heard. He was heard because of his reverence. What kind of answer did he receive? What kind of answer did he get? It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It says Jesus learned something. He learned obedience. The word obedience means to under-listen. To under-listen. It comes from two words. Jesus learned under-listening from what he suffered. He said, God, I don't want this, but... Your will be done. And then what God says, okay, you're going to learn under listening. And why did he need to 
He needed to learn to inhabit a body and to tune God in when there were things that this body did not want to deal with. Did Jesus want to die? Did Jesus want to die? No. Was he willing to die? Which of those things did he experience? Both of them. Both of them. And so what did he say in the garden? When he knew he was going to die, did he say, well, I can't ask the Father to take this cup from me because I know it's his will. You know what he said? Father, take this cup from me. Why did he say that? You know why? Because he could say anything to his Father. He was authentic in his communication with the Father. He didn't hold anything back. You know why? Because he understood that intimacy this way was the road to strength. Can you ask God about things and just give it to him and not bite your tongue because, well, I can't ask for that because that's... Jesus opened his heart. He spoke freely with his Father. Uh, There's something about that. Uh, He asked the Father to take away the cup of suffering. Um, And having prayed, it's what it says, Father, if you're willing, this is in Luke 22, Take this cup from me. Listen to what he says. This is the night before he's going to die. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. The cup of suffering. The cup of death. If you're willing, take it. Yet not my will, but thine be done. And having prayed, you know what it says? And being in anguish, he prayed more. And I'm sorry. And right after this prayer, okay? Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Okay. It says, your will be done. An angel comes and strengthens him. What do you think happens next? He brushes off his garment and says, okay, now I feel better. Right? Right? Is that what happened? Here's what happened. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It takes strength to grieve. It doesn't take strength when you have what you want. It takes strength to grieve when you don't have what you want. Sometimes we see grief as a sign of a lack of faith. Come on. There's things to be sad about. There's things to mourn. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. What Jesus experienced when he talked to the Father, the strength to grieve. Have you ever experienced that? The strength to grieve. That's what Jesus experienced. The Bible has some things to say about prayer. And so, prayer that's according to God's will is when Jesus, he didn't need to learn to underlisten because he was a son, by the way. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. Do you know why he had to learn that? In order to be a source of eternal life. There are things that you're going to go through, and you're going to assume it's about you. 
It's about you needing to learn something. It's, I'm not as much of a son. He doesn't love me as much as. And you know what the deal is going to be? It's not about you. We don't suffer in order to be his children. We suffer in order to be the sources of eternal existence. Those who reproduce in the physical realm, women, have the stretch marks to show for it, have the scars to show for it, have the memory of pain. Reproduction is painful in the physical realm. Reproduction is painful in the spiritual realm. We go through things. It's so God can reveal himself to us and through us to others. The things that you're going through, he is not punishing you. It could well be that he's preparing you so that he can reveal himself to you and through you to somebody else. It's not just about you. It's about what's going to come through you to others. Whose design and plan is this? This is God's plan. So what this means, God will not pluck you out of a difficult place. You ask him to, okay? Ask him to. But he won't do that always. Why? Do you understand why? So he can reveal himself both to you and through you to somebody else so that you can learn to under-listen. If you're in a difficult place, can I Hold on to the reality of your difficulty. Please don't be a hypocrite. If, you, if, you're, if you're in pain, tell them. Don't say, oh, God, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for all I have. Thank him for all you have, but thank him. But talk to him about what you don't have. Hold on to honesty and authenticity. And hold on to his hand at the same time. His commitments and his promises. He says he will never cast you adrift. And he'll never leave you behind. This is what I'm going to encourage you to do. Hold on to both. The reality of your hurt and the reality of your hope. Don't let go of the reality of hurt. You're a hypocrite. Don't let go of the reality of hope. Then you're a pessimist. Hold on to both. And talk to him about it. And you know what? This will get you through till tomorrow. You do this a day at a time. You get the strength for tomorrow. And then you know what you do tomorrow? Is you grab this, you grab that, and you get through tomorrow. You know the most difficult day to believe God? What day? Today. Today. Today is the hardest day to believe. And you hold on to her, you hold on to hope. Uh, the presence of fruitfulness, there's another verse that says, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will, that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. Jesus is talking to everybody, to people who have left everything to follow him. And this is what he says. I chose you that you would go bear fruit, fruit that will remain. They had to go through a process. And then he says, then the Father will give you whatever you ask in his name. Sometimes we forget the first part. You know what God wants to do? He wants you to bear fruit. And in order to bear fruit, there's going to be some difficult things that would happen. We go through a process of bearing fruit that remains, and it's difficult, I believe. On the far side of bearing fruit, then we 
receive what we ask for. By the way, you've ever seen the way I've talked to you about this? You know, I used to have an apple tree until I pruned it. <laughs> pruned it. Somebody said, when you prune an apple, you, you, you get rid of the things that go vertical. So I pruned my apple tree. And the middle parts that go up, I prune them too. And so I was telling this guy who who um, told me, actually, Dave Breifogel passed away this past year. I said, Dave, I pruned my tree. And he goes, Mike, you didn't prune the Cambrian. Uh, the what? The what? What's the Cambrian? Yeah, Mike, the middle part. Yeah, Dave, I pruned that too. And so, but anyways, so I used to know a tree. You ever see the way fruit works for a tree? You know, it, it, it bears fruit, and it's the darndest thing. I just love to watch it. And then the fruit, the fruits hang in the tree, and then this place opens in the tree. You ever see this? It's like a mouth opens. And then the tree branch goes down, and it sticks the apple in its mouth, and then it eats it. Have you ever seen that? No, you haven't seen that. <laughs> because we don't bear fruit for ourselves. Oh, we bear fruit for others. Bear fruit for others. And in order to learn what we ask for, we... Bear fruit, and those who bear fruit have learned to deal with things that they'd rather not have, but they've learned to hold and hold and persevere. Do you understand? Get that. Get that. Fruit is not about us. Fruit's not for us to enjoy. Fruit is for them. And often, and sometimes it's for them. Uh, at this point, the message takes a surprising turn and talks about the forgiveness of sins. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. I know what you're thinking. Don't bump him. I think you've done that. The sin that leads to death. Okay, no, we're going to talk about what the sin that leads to death is. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects and the evil one does not. What is sin leading to death? I think in a, in a word, it is in the context of those, there are people who are exerting pressure on these believers, who I think are Jewish believers by and large, Jewish believers, and they are exerting pressure on them to lure them back into Judaism. I think that's the sin leading to death in the context. Somebody who's gone from Judaism into Christianity at this juncture of salvation history, the birthing of the church, a sin that leads to death, is to move from Judaism to Christianity to experience this and say, I think I'm going to go back. I think I'm going to go back. And so to move, try to move back into Judaism from Christianity as a Jew is a sin leading to death. You say, why does, why that? Look what it says. And there are a couple of articles I included. I'm not going to read them, but they deal with a couple difficult passages from Hebrews that we end up applying to individuals to whom it's not written. There is a problem at this juncture in salvation history with Jews going into the church and they comprise the foundation of the church. And when they went into the church, they lost their neighborhood and their livelihood. And then what they wanted to do was kind of turn around and go back. And the writers said, you can't do that. 
Can't do that. You can't go from a place into salvation and go back, and that's spiritual suicide in the context. This is what it says in Hebrews 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. When it talks about dead works, it talks about the works that lead to death. And the works that lead to death in this context are not immorality. The works that lead to death are parts of ancient Judaism. He's talking to individuals who are walked out of Judaism, and they want to walk back into it. That is what will lead to death in the context. That's what he talks about. It's the practices of ancient Judaism. And again, it's not on blowing up Jews. Ancient Judaism is the foundation of the church, but a Jew could not leave that and go back into it and find eternal existence. The old covenant is a dead end. Um, we died in Christ so that we could die to old covenant law. Here's what it says. You also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. The law in this context is the old covenant and what it describes here. What happens when you become a Christian? You die to the law through the body of Christ so that you're no longer under the jurisdiction of old covenant law. You die to the law through the body of Christ. Why? So that you can belong to another. You know what it's describing? It's like being married. And you can marry the old covenant and what ends up happening. In fact, here's what it means. To be under the old covenant is to be awfully wedded. Awfully wedded. It's not a good marriage. A conditional covenant, you're blessed if you obey, but you're cursed if you disobey. I mean, all you have to do is covet, and if you disobey, that's not a nice marriage. It's not. It's awfully wedded. And what happens at the cross? Lawfully widowed. It describes the way marriages work in that day. If you're married as a woman, if you're married to a guy who's really a piece of work, really a tool, and you're stuck with him, don't elbow him. No, okay, it's not, it's not the one beside you. So, but what might happen if you said, oh my goodness, I'm stuck with this guy and I don't believe in you. Anyway, so, but what if he died? There we go. If he dies, then you're free to marry another. Oh, good deal. Okay, let's get rid of him and let's move on. And that's the picture it's painting here. If you are awfully wedded, and if in Christ you die to the law, so it's like the old covenant obligation died, what can you do? What can you do? You can marry somebody else, happily married. You know, you end up marrying Jesus in the new covenant. Would you agree that's a better marriage? That a better deal? That's what happened at the cross. People who are awfully wedded, to become lawfully widowed, and then happily married to Jesus. Now, can you marry the old covenant and the new covenant at the same time? You know what that is? Spiritual polygamy. That's what it is. You can't be married to both. Because Jesus died so that you would be able to sever 
you're being on the jurisdiction of old covenant law and that you could go into the new covenant. Now, what John is writing about individuals who walk into the new covenant, marry Jesus and say, ah, okay, catch you later, I'm heading back under. I'm, and then what the writer, what John says is, you can't do that. There's no life there. And he tries to put a hand out. Within Judaism, Part of the problem was within Judaism, and this, there was no provision for intentional sin. In Judaism, no kidding, I don't know why we haven't heard this. In Judaism, if you sin intentionally, there's no forgiveness. Only if you sin unintentionally. You didn't know if it was a problem or you didn't know that this was a vice. That's really what it says. There was no forgiveness for intentional sin. If you sin intentionally within Judaism, you're toast. I mean, does that sound like being happily married? That sound like a good deal to you? Thank God for the cross. It says, if we go on sinning, look what it says in Hebrews 10. If we go on sinning deliberately, willingly, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There is no longer a sacrifice for sins. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You know what it was like under the old covenant? If you sinned willingly and there were witnesses to it, you couldn't kill an animal. You couldn't kill a calf. You couldn't go to the temple. You know what ended up happening if they were doing it right? You were taken out and killed. I think we gloss it over. But the old covenant was not nice. It's not just some commandments that you can use to make God happy. It, it's not a good deal. And that's why Jesus had to die. To, re, to return to Judaism from Christianity was tantamount to committing spiritual suicide. By the way, when Jesus spoke from the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. What did he say after that? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Was it intentional sin? They didn't know. That's why he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know. This is not intentional sin for them. They don't know I'm God. I have been risen from the dead. You know what John is concerned with? These Jews who have become Christians, now do they know that Jesus is the Son of God? You see the problem now? If they turn around and go back into Judaism, are they guilty of an intentional sin. Yes. And John's saying, don't. Stop. You can't go back there. These people are trying to drag you out and drag you back in and don't go. That's what's happening. Um, John is urging these Christians to resist the pull of those trying to lure them back under the old covenant. That's a sin that leads to death. Do you understand that now? That's the sin that leads to death. A Jew going from Christianity back into Judaism. There's no life there. That's what it's talking about. Um, This understanding helps us to make sense of another verse. It says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. When it says, and again, if you listen, this is what this verse says. This is what it reads. We know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. And you know what? That's really softening it. Do you know what this really, it's really not keep on sinning? 
what it literally says is no one born of God. Everyone who is born of God does not sin. Okay, so just don't sin, and let's close in prayer. Okay. Now, what does that mean? Uh, we ran into the same issue in chapter 3. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And when it talks about making a practice of sinning, it's doing the same thing. The biblical writers, those who interpreted this, are trying to soften the blow. But that's not what it says. It really is saying Everyone born of God does not sin. And so how can we understand that? Because we know that it being sinless is not possible. So here's the deal. Sin, lawlessness is a Jewish thought. If you are a Jew and you think of sin, you don't think of sin as just immorality. You think of it as a violation of all covenant law. Now here's the deal. If you're a Christian, is God going to charge you with violating Old Covenant law? Is he going to charge you with breaking one of the commandments? Good question. If you have been awfully wedded and now are lawfully widowed and married to Christ and you are under the jurisdiction of the New Covenant and not under the Old is God going to charge you with violating Old Covenant commandments? Are you sure? That's what it means. You're no longer under the jurisdiction of Old Covenant law. He's not counting. Therefore, is it possible for you to sin? Now, that's a tricky question. Is it possible for you to do sinful things? Is, will you be charged with sinning? No, you will not. Why? Because you were awfully wedded, but then you were lawfully widowed, and now you're happily married. He is not counting. He isn't. You say, what? That's what happened at the cross. That's what happened. And you know what it means to believe that? It means you're a Christian. That's what a Christian believes. We talked about foreign diplomats. Do they break U.S. law? Are they charged with it? Because they're not under the jurisdiction of it. So what this means then is... Children of God do not sin. It doesn't mean that we are perfect. It means that our imperfections are not counted as sins. In God's eyes, your imperfections are not counted as sins against a holy God. They're not counted as lawlessness. What would happen if you believed that? Tough to believe, though. Sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Apart from law, there's no transgression. We're talking about God's view, not man. Um, John ends, it says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world is in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come, 
and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We'll get tripped up when it says, little children, keep yourself from idols. In the context, what is idolatry? In the context, you know what it is? Yeah, this is tricky. It's being in relationship with the God whom Jesus expresses him to be and turning around and going back under an old covenant God. Now, is the old covenant wrong? It is not wrong. Is it reflective of who God is? Is the old covenant reflective of who God is and how God deals with us? No, it is not. Is it? It is a shadow of how God is. You can see my shadow. If you can't see, you can maybe see a shadow. Can you see a face there? Can you see a smile? Can you see a frown? That's the Old Testament. It, there's things that we can know about God, but they're, they're not clear. If you want a clear image of God, who do you have to look at? Jesus Christ. He is God. And what does that mean? You've really got a good deal if you're married to Jesus. He forgives your wickedness and remembers your sins no more. And when that, that fear of judgment starts to decrease, guess what increases? What increases? Love. Love increases. Perfect love drives out fear. John is fighting influences which in his mind will lead to his children being lured into spiritual death. At that point, it's not about going just to different churches. It's about Jewish Christians moving back into Judaism, and John sees that as a a matter of life and death. We're going to close with a song. I'm going to ask you to, um, one thing that we talk about, covenant clarity. Cultivate that this Christmas. Jesus came so that this could be understood. I don't see it talked about often. But it's the foundation of Christianity. Thank you for um, the good news of forgiveness an eternal life, answered prayer, you hear us, and because you want to reveal yourself to us and through us, we don't always get what we want, but we are assured of an et- a place with you eternally. You're not counting our sins. And as the reality of the absence of judgment makes its way into our heart, it softens our heart. We end up being less afraid and a little bit more confident about where we'll be. Again, this is a process for us. Would you continue to allow us to see what we need to see and believe what we need to believe so that we can be who you would have us to be, so we can be like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.